Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless this time together this evening, that we would be able to study your word and learn from it, and especially help us to see that your holy word contained in the Bible as we have it is your direct discourse with us that we may be guided, corrected, and comforted in our lives. We pray that you would continue to bless us with your word, both preached, taught, and read, and that we would lead holy lives according to it. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so we are moving on in Lutheranism 101. Um, so far, we have gone through two parts of the book. I think we're about, we're about halfway through here. Um, more or less, or two-fifths of the way through. There's five parts. Um, So we're two-fifths of the way through, and it's been a joy so far. If you look in the table of contents, uh, we have gone through part one, which I think they call... I can't find the table of contents. Here it is. Um... All about relationships and part two, delivering the gifts of God. My way to describe the kind of divisions of the book as we've gone through it so far has been that that part one, uh, those all about relationships, uh, those were the uh, basics about God, sin, uh, creation, right? What else did we cover? Uh, Jesus, yeah, was, yeah, we talked about uh, who Jesus is, salvation, um, and about the the end of the world or eschatology. So those were kind of just the basic uh, parts of Christian theology, right? And that's really stuff that that most Christians should be able to agree on. Um, and the way I described this was thinking about a car. These basics are just your basic car parts, right? You got your tires, you got your engine, you got your transmission, you got the body, right? Basics of theology. The second part of the book, delivering the gifts of God, uh, we talked about uh, kind of defining terms. That... In that chapter, we talked about all, or that part, we talked about all these different chapters, all sorts of things, Christian marriage, different Christian denominations, uh, what exactly is faith, what exactly is conversion, all of these different things. And that was kind of saying, okay, well, we got the basic parts of the car figured out, and now, okay, what's a flywheel do, right? Uh, how does... Uh, what's where's the starter located and and how does that work when you turn the key right so we have uh, these kind of things that are really important right car doesn't work without a starter but uh, they take a little more discussion a little more detail right so we had the basics and then we did defining terms now what we're gonna do in part three uh, is talk about really the meat uh, what what the part is actually called here is the means of grace. And to keep with the car analogy, 
the way that you can think about this is that we're in some way we're going back to a basic topic. Means of grace came up in the in that basic stuff with salvation. But what we're really focusing on, I think, is what I would call the engine of Lutheranism here. The engine of Lutheranism. That in this car that we've been building in Lutheranism 101, the thing that drives Lutheran theology, I, I, I think, is this I mean, it's the gospel, right? And that, that's what the engine of Lutheranism is. But the means of grace, uh, this is the thrust of the gospel, right? This is how the gospel comes to us. So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at in part three is what we're going to call, what I'm going to call, at least for this introduction, the engine of Lutheranism. And uh, means of grace, we have talked about a little bit before. As I said, this is how the gospel is delivered to us. So you can think of it this way. I've used this analogy before. Um, Hopefully you may remember this, but... When we talk about grace and the means of grace, grace is God's favor toward us, right? And God shows his favor toward us in the gospel primarily by the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus, God sends his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again for our justification. And that happens 2,000 years ago. Right, that happens in history, that happens in time, uh, throughout the development of history and God's creation. Uh, at the right time, God sends his son to do this for us. 2,000 years later, and throughout every time since then, the question is, how is what Jesus did, how is what God did in his son Jesus Christ, how is that given to us? Right? How do we receive that? Um, what what is the connection between the cross and the believer? And the connection is these means of grace, these ways in which that grace is delivered to us. So the analogy uh, that I've used before is that you can have money in a bank and you can have money in your bank account, right? There's money in the bank. The, the money's there, right? There's money in the vault in the bank. But is it in your account? Is it credited to you? And that's the question we're asking. How does, how does the grace of God come to you? Um, how does his mercy come to you? And there's four ways that we're going to, or four means of grace that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about tonight, to start talking about it, um, is is the word, the word of God, uh, the Bible. And this is also I'm going, to, going to include not just um, the Bible kind of as a book, but the Bible preached, the Bible taught, uh, the, the Bible read. All of these things is uh, going to be included in, in this. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The, just for your reference, the other means of grace. So we have, one, we have the Word of God. Two is going to be baptism. 
3 is uh, absolution, confession and absolution, and 4 is the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. I've always found it kind of funny that with baptism, that's the only thing we call it. We just call it baptism. I guess like maybe the washing of regeneration, but no one says that, right? Uh, with the Lord's Supper, we have like five different names and no one can decide what to call it. Um, anyhow, that, that just is what it is. So uh, those are the four primary means of grace that uh, Lutherans tend to identify from the Bible. Sometimes uh, people will kind of leave out absolution when they're talking about this or um, maybe kind of leave out the word when they're talking about this, depending on what kind of categories they're trying to build for teaching purposes. But I think if you look at the scriptures, uh, you can definitely see all four of these here as ways in which God delivers his uh, grace to people. And you could probably even add some to this list too, like prayer in some ways you could say is a means of grace um, in that in that we ask for forgiveness of sins and we believe God answers that prayer. Right. But um, but as far as primarily what delivers God's grace, what delivers the the benefit of the cross to the Christian, uh, it's it's these things, it's these things. And they are received by faith. So going back to some of that defining term stuff with faith, uh, these things are believed in and received by faith. All right. Any questions on kind of where we're going, what we're doing, moving away from defining terms into looking, going back, diving, deep diving back into the, the engine of Lutheran theology. How fast is this car? Uh, the Lutheran theology car goes very fast. It is a pristine, uh, in my mind, sports car. So, you know. I don't. I'm not like a huge car guy, but uh, we could pick whatever. What's your favorite car, Gary? Well, I'm, I'm Are you like a Corvette guy? Okay. Okay. How about a Tesla? A Tesla? I don't know. I like the better warrant electric, but there is something about that car. Really, really like that one. Um. There you go. I've kind of always liked Corvettes. I don't know. I don't really know. My father-in-law likes Mustangs. So maybe we can do a Mustang. Um, all right. I saw a 69 Mustang Fastback at the store. I had my car in for work yesterday. And they had a 69 Mustang Fastback in there they were working on. Um... All right, well, that's our car, 69 Mustang. If, if Pastor Elkins was here, it would be a 53 Chevy, but, you know. Whatever car you want, that's the Lutheran car, and um, it goes fast, and it runs well. And it's paid for. And it's paid for. That's right. Totally paid for. All right, um, so diving into the Word of God here, a word about God's Word. This is Chapter 16, if you have your book with you. And I'm just going to highlight some things from the chapter, kind of go through it, 
Um, I think it's actually organized pretty well, so I didn't uh, try and reorganize information into a better way. Some of the chapters I like better than others. That's just how it goes when teaching from a book like this. So uh, the, the first thing that it introduces here is kind of how Lutherans think about the scriptures. And that introductory paragraph brings up the feeding of the 5,000 from the book of John, at the end of which uh, Jesus asks his disciples, do you want to go away as well? Because people are uh, leaving. And Peter says, and we say this during the Alleluia in Divine Service Setting 1, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's John 6, 67 to 68. Uh, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's, the author here says, that's how Lutherans think about the scriptures, the words of eternal life, the living inspired word of God. Now, what I think is interesting about that is that the Bible is self-attesting, self-attesting. So what I mean by that is that a lot of times, especially in apologetics, the defense of the faith, people will want to or are tempted to try and find way outside ways to prove the Bible. Uh, so to try and prove it scientifically by you know, looking at uh, the age of the different manuscripts um, or looking kind of historically at like the Dead Sea Scrolls that show that this has been around for a long time or um, trying to show uh, how modern-day science lines up with things that are you could claim to be scientific uh, from the Bible. So the like uh, – the people at the in Kentucky, the Ark people, um, Answers in Genesis, they, they're they're big on this. You know, they're they're always trying to show how science and the Bible line up with one another, and that's all fine and good. I don't I don't deny any of that, but that's not the reason that we have faith in the Scriptures. Um, and this I think this is important when we talk about apologetics. Sometime, you know, past two fifths of this book, I'm not sure. Uh, when we talk about apologetics, one of the things we'll talk about is the idea of presuppositions and that one of the things you don't want to do in defending the faith or in apologetics is to grant other people their presuppositions. So if, um, if we say we can only believe Christianity on the basis of if it lines up with science, well, that's not a very firm foundation to stand on. One, science changes constantly, and scientists can't even agree on what they what they believe, and they constantly uh, end up changing whole paradigms. Um, and two, the foundation of our faith is not science; it's the Word of God. And so, the reason that we believe this this sounds circular reasoning, like circular reasoning, and it is, but I think that ultimately. Every belief is based on circular reasoning, so this is a discussion for another time. But the reason that we believe the Bible is because the Bible shows itself to us by faith to be true. The Bible shows itself to be true. It's self-attesting to its truth. 
And uh, we believe in it by faith, and it shows itself in our lives of faith uh, to be true. So the reason this uh, verse is interesting to me, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's a statement of faith, and it's a statement in the Bible about the Bible. And there are a lot of statements in the Bible about the Bible that teach us about itself, uh, which is very interesting. But this is how God has chosen to provide uh, his word to us is to show it to be true by itself showing itself to be true. So uh, there are a couple verses that I wanted to just read or look up. Um, and let me throw some out there and then different people can look them up and then we can go through them relatively quickly. Who wants to find 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17? Oh. Judy's got 2 Timothy 3. Who wants to find Hebrews 4, 12? Can someone take Psalm 119, 105? Steve, you got Psalm 119? Yep. Okay. Steve's got Psalm 119, and then I'll take the last one, uh, which is going to be from John 5. So that's, we got four, four of us there. You have to remind me what I said. One oh five. All right, uh, Judy, do you have Second Timothy three? Yes, you said okay. sixteen and seventeen. Sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, so. 2 Timothy 3 is great, and we'll come back to this verse, uh, but this verse uh, shows that God's word is inspired. Another word for God breathed is inspired. Uh, God breathed here is kind of a uh, very literal translation of the word in Greek, uh, which is literally the words for God and spirit or God and breath. In Greek, the word for spirit, breath, and wind is all the same word. So you have those two words put together into this compound word. God breathed or God spirited. Uh, All scripture is breathed out by God is another translation or um, inspired is really, I think, maybe not a literal translation, but that's the point is that by his spirit, God breathes these words to life, the Holy Scriptures, he inspires them, right? And we'll talk about this when we talk about human author versus God as author. Um, Also, the Scripture is useful for four different things. Uh, What was your translation? Rebuke, was that one of them? Uh, Teaching. Teaching. Rebuking. Rebuke. Correcting. Correct. Training. And training in righteousness. Mm -hmm. Right? And then um, there's another, Romans 15, 4, which we're not going to read, also talks about how the scriptures are useful for comfort. So uh, these are the five, um, sometimes in uh, Lutheran theology, this list will appear of the five uses of scripture. These are the five uses. 
teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, and comfort. Uh, so the scriptures are useful for these things. All right, uh, God-breathed and useful. All right, and then um, so that the man of God may be – that you could spend all night on this verse, really. So that the man of God may be complete, right? And that, that word is um, – the word complete there, I believe, is the word for in Greek telos, which means perfection, completion, something reaching its full end. Right, So whenever Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, that's the word. So that the man of God might be complete, might be made whole, if you will, okay? um, by, the use, by the use of this inspired word. So you see how those things go together? God's inspired word applies to men in this certain way. It's useful for these things uh, to, to give the men all these things that they need, right? Uh, teaching, correction, rebuke, comfort. And then it makes you whole as a person. All right, so uh, what was the next one I said? Hebrews 4.12, who had that one? I do. All right. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So it's a double-edged sword. Um And is alive and active. That God's word, and, and one of the ways that it accomplishes these uses that it has, is by cutting through things. Which is an image of making things very open and clear. Right? Uh, by showing what is going to be obvious what is going to be clear and um, by taking away what is bad by putting there what is good um, and this kind of alive and act- activeness relates back to that God breathed right that God's word because it's inspired um, it's not just any old, old book we're going to talk about this we're going to talk about how it it is performative in nature that God's word isn't just, you know, like some romance novel off the shelf that's really is just words on a page um, that certainly have meaning, but uh, don't exactly, they're not alive, right? They're just, those words could disappear and no one would, would care. But these words actually do something. Um, they're alive and active. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a minute. And then uh, finally... Um, Steve, Psalm 119, 105. Yeah, the ESV says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yeah, yeah it's a lamp and a light. So uh, that, again, these, that you can get these different images here for the word as it attests to itself that the word lights things up, right? It makes things clear. It makes things open. Um, it makes life understandable. Makes life understandable. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Scripture proves scripture, and it fits. So um, it's self-attesting in this, in that way, that as you read scripture, it proves itself to be true. 
Yeah, so, and then another phrase is that um, is good to know is Scripture interprets Scripture. And this is a principle of interpretation, but it's uh, very Lutheran that this is why Lutherans say Scripture alone. The reason we can have Scripture alone or God's Word alone without anything else is because it can interpret itself. So there was an early church father, Irenaeus, um, who said that God's word is like a mosaic. Do you know what a, mo- a mosaic is, right? So it's kind of like stained, these are stained glass mosaics that we have where there's different pieces that form together to make a picture. And he said that picture is of Christ. That's what the script, that's John 5. We're going to do that one in just a second. Uh, whenever heretics take scripture and misuse it, what they're doing is they're putting the pieces in the wrong places and pretending and making a different picture and pretending like it's what it was meant to be, even though it's obviously not. And he says uh, the heretics he's dealing with are the Gnostics. And he says the Gnostics take scripture and try and make a picture of a fox with it, which I understand his hatred of foxes because they keep killing my chickens. And I'm trying to trap them unsuccessfully. So uh, I will that's, – that's a story for another, another time. But um, the foxes – the picture of the foxes is, is quite triggering for me. Um, anyhow, so scripture interprets scripture. That is um, a very important principle. And this is why uh, – so sometimes people get really caught up into how you should interpret the Bible, like what are – When you approach a Bible passage, how do you figure out what it means? And different people will have different ways of doing that. Um, The Kind of the big debate throughout church history is do you interpret it uh, literally or allegorically? And so in other words, do you interpret it um, very kind of historically uh, without a lot of outside reference to other concepts? Or do you interpret it more metaphorically that, uh, say, you know, Song of Songs is a great example of this. Is it about marriage or is it about Christ and his church? You know, what, which one of those is it? And I think throughout Scripture there's aspects of both abundantly. But I kind of just ignore that whole debate because I think the best her- hermeneutic, which is a way of saying how to interpret things, uh, the best scriptural interpretation is devotional interpretation. In other words, just read it and study it and hear its preaching, and it fits together on it in its own way. The more you learn the stories of scripture, the more you study them, the more you hear the preaching of the word, it fits together in its own way. And there's only one way where it fits together, really. Um, so, uh, that, that scripture interprets scripture. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, last Bible verse here of self-attesting scripture. There's more. I only picked a few is, uh, John 5 39. And this is, uh, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify to me. 
So the scriptures are uh, Christ-centered. They teach Christ. Uh, Luke 24 is another place of this when Jesus explains to the disciples on the Emmaus Road everything in the scriptures concerning himself. That the scriptures are all, as Irenaeus said, they're making a picture of Jesus. Right? This, they're, they're Christ-centered. Um, and we have faith in Christ. And John 1, for instance, uh, actually just totally conflates the person of Jesus and the written spoken word. Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, that God's word is Jesus. Jesus is God's word. Um, the Bible is God's word to us. It is Jesus to us. And uh, you can't really separate those things out. You can't separate those things out. Okay. But as we can see in all these Bible verses, um, that scripture does attest to itself. And we don't need to go to outside sources to prove it per se. Uh, it will fit together in its own way like we talked about. Um, all right. So we've gotten through the first paragraph. Speeding along here. All right, so uh, introducing the Bible. Uh, so I'm just going to highlight a few things here. The Bible provides the basis for all our teaching and living. The way we've talked about this before, uh, when we talked about confess, uh, Lutheran confessions, is that the Bible is the rule and norm. For faith and life. For faith and life. The rule and norm for faith and life. So rule and norm is a phrase that means it provides all of the boundaries, right? Where we can go, where we can't go. The Bible gives all of the boundaries of where we can go and where we can't go. And uh, it defines what, you know, what we can and can't believe in. And not only what we can and can't believe, but also... Tell, gives us, it's a lamp and light, right? Uh, it shows us where we should go and what we should do in life. Um, it norms our life, right? So uh, you can think of how someone might say something like uh, this person, so if, if, you're a, if you're an athlete and you have like a, another athlete that you look up to, and could say that, that that coach or that athlete, they kind of norm my game, right? They, they kind of provide an example and a way of what my game in this athletic endeavor is. Does that make sense? So if, you, if you're a tennis player and you've got like a tennis coach that gives you his kind of philosophy of tennis, you could say that that coach is the norm for your tennis game. Well, uh, this is how the Bible is for our entire life. It norms the way that we live. It provides a what is normal, right? Uh, that so that maybe another example of this word would be how everyone throughout COVID was talking about nothing's normal, back to normal, the new normal, right? What is normal? Well, the Bible per is actually defines what's normal, right? Um, uh, the the as Christians, I don't think that we should even talk about what the societal norm is. I mean, we don't need to know what the societal norm is. We need to know what the biblical norm is, right, for our life. So um, 
we have the, the, the rule and norm for faith and life. And this is uh, something – so then uh, further down in that paragraph, I love this phrase. Uh, he says, we, we know many people believe that life is relative. Things are just a matter of opinion. For Lutherans, however, the most important opinion is God's. <laughs> he is the only absolute, and everything is relative to him. In order to have more than just subjective opinions, we look to the Bible to give us something solid that we can point to as a standard outside of our own sinful thinking. And I love that. Uh, this is what I've been kind of talking about when we were talking about marriage and marital uh, things, and we were talking about um, women in the church, and we watched the documentary and even, even Exile and all that. One of the things I said a couple times because I knew that um, – what the Bible teaches about those things is outside of societal norm is that as Christians, our duty, even when things are uncomfortable or when things go against the grain of society, our duty is to conform ourselves to the scriptures. And uh, that is – I just love that idea of at the end of the day, what's in the scriptures is God's opinion. And it's actually very freeing that I don't have to have an opinion on everything, right? I don't, I don't have to figure out everything for myself. I think a lot of people live their life trying to figure out what they believe about these big questions in life. And that's actually very stressful uh, where as a Christian, I realize, no, God has created the universe in a certain way. And he has made me, his creature, who's very small in this universe and probably won't be remembered 100 years after I'm gone. But he loves me. He's had mercy on me. And he's given me a way to live that is meaningful and valuable. And so I can live my life in joy, conforming my life to what the scriptures say. That's the opinion that matters. I'm justified by faith. That's the opinion that matters. God has justified me. It doesn't matter what man thinks of me. It doesn't matter what my own thoughts are. What matters is what God thinks. Um, and we get that from the Bible. All right. So to get into the brass tacks a little bit of what is the Bible, um, just a couple highlights here. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. So we got 66 different books in the Bible, um, probably know that, written by many different people, so lots of different human authors, over thousands of years, uh, so from the Old Testament, from Mos time of Moses uh, to New Testament, a couple thousand years, uh, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, so um, he doesn't, the author doesn't go into detail here, but um, you probably know this. Hebrew is the Old Testament, Greek is the New Testament, and Aramaic is two very short sections in the Old Testament, Daniel 2 to 7 and Ezra 4 to 7. And Aramaic is very, very similar to Hebrew. If you know Hebrew, you can you can struggle your way through Aramaic with the dictionary. 
it's 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 not that bad. Um, so that's basically how that how that plays out. But primarily, it's Hebrew and Greek, and and then a little bit of Aramaic. So um, that's the languages of the Bible. And as a side note. All LCMS pastors are required to learn Hebrew and Greek so um, that we can teach uh, as clearly as possible using the original languages. All right. Uh, the type of literature varies. History, prophecy, poetry, speeches, letters, and so forth. So that's an important point that there are different genres of the scriptures. And the reason this is important is because very oftentimes you'll have some someone who's trying to discredit Christianity say, well, you don't really interpret the Bible literally because you don't take this passage. So we'll think of a passage here. Uh, you don't take the passage where Jesus says that he's a door. You don't take that literally. So you're not you don't really believe in the Bible, do you? Um, which is kind of a silly thing to say. But the point is that there are different genres in Scripture and different types of speech. So overall, we do take the Bible literally in that we believe it is true, but it's true according to its own genre, right? So uh, when Revelation talks about Christ reigning for a thousand years, we don't believe that that has to literally be 1,000 years uh, in some hyperliteral way because it's an apocalyptic book and the apocalypse of John the book of revelation has lots of symbolic numbers right so um, that's kind of how that plays out but knowing that there are different genres and that different different genres get interpreted according to their genre then that is helpful uh, for knowing things so so and then conversely, you know, that doesn't mean just because there's something symbolic in Revelation, that doesn't mean that the history in the history books, like Kings and Chronicles, that we have some reason to doubt that that history or to take that metaphorically, right? Because it's history, it's not apocalypse. So it's it's different. Um all right, so there's different genres. Alright, so uh even from a human standpoint, the Bible um has been Hailed as a masterpiece of literature, which is true. It is a beautiful piece of literature in its comprehensiveness. The Holy Ghost writer. The remarkable thing about the Bible is that it was written not only by humans, but by God. All right, so uh, this gets us into the idea of God breathed useful of inspiration. And the way that the Bible is inspired is that it has all these human authors, but where did these human authors come to decide to put down what they put down in the Holy Scriptures? And, and how is it not just their writing, but God's writing? It's because the Holy Spirit inspired them. Right? The Holy Spirit uh, inspired these writers to write what they wrote. And then uh, throughout the, the history of the church, even in the time of, of Jesus and the apostles and, and back even in the time of Moses, uh, it was 
clear to the church, God made it clear to the church by the Holy Spirit which what books uh, were insp- indeed inspired and what was the writing of God. It's self, again, it's self-attesting. Um, it shows itself to be the inspired word of God. And so um, we can say on one hand that there's you know, 40-some authors of Scripture, depending on who you believe, what wrote what books, and so on and so forth. Or we can just say there's one author, the Holy Spirit. right? You can say either. Both are true. Uh, but the Bible is written um, by God. right? It is God's word to us. God's word to us. Um, and then he go, the author goes on there to talk about the idea of inspired, right? Um, all right. Now, inspiration, I think, is really the basis or the way that we can then talk about a lot of other th- aspects or things in, in the Bible. So with, all, with a lot of these things here that we've talked about so far – that it's a lot of different books, 66 books, a lot of different genres, a lot of different authors, human authors. There is a oneness to the scriptures, right? Again, and the, the oneness really comes down to the fact that it is Christ-centered, that it makes a picture of Christ, that it is all about the mission of God to seek and to save the lost by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for their sins. That's what the Bible is all about. Everything in the Bible is about that at the end of the day. And the oneness and the clarity of the scriptures in that sense, that the scriptures show us what they mean and that they are all focused on this one thing and centered on this one thing, that that oneness and that clearness, it comes from the inspiration. Right. If it was not inspired, if the, if the scriptures were not inspired, they could not have that oneness and clarity. They could not be the Bible as as a whole. Right. They have to be inspired to be that kind of clear, that kind of unified. Um, and this is kind of what he's getting at here when he talks about this idea of it being revelation to us, then is that. Uh, and this is this also goes to the usefulness, as, as we've already talked about, or the, the opening up uh, by the sword and, and by it being alive and being a lamp. That because these scriptures are inspired by God and they are given for us, they, they are useful for us. They open life up for us. They open faith up for us. They teach us. They are active. In other words, and th- this is the word revelation – is that it reveals, right? It reveals. Uh, so the the book Revelation um, is the word apocalypse in Greek, which I've already talked about a little bit. And that word uh, in in Greek it, in, as a verb it means to open up, to reveal, right? And it's the it's the word that like when you uh, to unveil. So at a wedding, whenever the the bride is unveiled by her bridegroom, he can see clearly now, right? He can see her face clearly, uh, that which he is to be uh, married to. So uh, this is the idea, is that life is being unveiled to us by God's word. God is is giving us um, 
all that we need, and that this is another aspect of the scriptures that we can talk about, that the scriptures are sufficient for us, that they are sufficient for life and salvation, that they are sufficient for all faith and life, that they um, contain everything that we need for our life in Christ. Now, do they contain everything about everything, about every detail in life? No, right? They don't tell us uh, how to make the gas prices go lower. They don't talk, tell us, although they are going lower. You've seen that? That's pretty good, I guess. Um, it, was, it was nice to come back from Colorado to see gas under $3. That was, that was nice. Uh, they don't tell us, you know, what setting to put the dryer on, right? But they do give us everything that we truly need, right? Man does not live by bread alone. This is another self-attesting Bible verse. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? They give us their sufficient. They give us what we need for life and salvation. Um, and that's a, that's such a comforting doctrine too, the sufficiency of Scripture that we we do have what we need in the Scriptures. Right? Even when everything seems to be going poorly and uh, things seem to be falling apart, we have what we need in the Scriptures. Um, I almost started. The class by having us sing a hymn stanza from the our uh, hymn of the month last month. I know my faith is founded, or was that two months ago? Um, that's a great hymn. There's a good section in the hymnal. Sorry, this is a tangent. There's a really good section in the hymnal uh, called the Word of God. It's like I don't know how many hymns are in here, but you got a lot of good hymns in here. Thy strong word. It's a great one. Um, my hope is, no, that's a justification. Preach you the word, Lord Jesus Christ with us abide. I like all these. God's word is our great heritage. Where's I know my faith is founded? It's in here. Here we go. Uh, yeah, I know my faith is founded on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, and this my faith confessing. Unmoved I stand on his sure word. Our reason cannot fathom. The truth of God profound, who trusts in human wisdom, relies on shifting ground. God's word is all-sufficient. It makes divinely sure. And trusting in its wisdom, my faith shall rest secure. I love that. I love that line um, of that hymn. But God's word is sufficient. Sufficient. All right. Moving on, then. I got five minutes. Um... We'll see if I can take care of this next part in five minutes. So the next two paragraphs there on page 126 as going through this are the Bible as tradition and nothing lost in translation. And both of these paragraphs have to do with kind of the history of how we got the Bible um, and the different manuscripts and things that we have. So the church has handed down and, and the scriptures throughout time and the re, the way it's done this is by making copies right so back in the days before the printing press right these, these were hand written copies by scribes and what's very interesting is that so with other religions and with other ancient texts as well copies were very strictly handled in the sense that 
uh, like for certain ta- religious texts and other ancient texts, only like professional scribes would be hired to make so many copies, and they were very carefully guarded. Christians did not do that with the Bible. They said, anyone wants to make a copy, make a copy. Here's a copy, here's a copy. And there were – so that for this reason um, – well, first of all, the reason for that is because the word of God is not bound. There's another self-attesting Bible verse. The word of God cannot be bound. The word of God cannot be bound because one of the things we'll talk about with the word is that the word is meant to be preached and taught, which is the same action in the, in the Bible. Preaching and teaching are always the same. It's the same action. So uh, the word is meant to go forth. It, it's not meant to stay stagnant. And the, uh, there's a paragraph in here about that, I think. The Bible is personal but not private. It's meant to go forth. And uh, so the word is very closely connected to mission, in the, I, I think scripturally speaking, that the Bible and mission, go, they go together because it's the preaching of the word. Romans 10, how can they believe if they have not been preached to? So uh, the early Christians were open to having lots and lots and lots of copies made of the original text. We do not have what are called the autographs or the very first manuscript that Paul ever wrote. We don't have that anymore. It got distributed too much and too many copies were made that it just got lost over time. That said, there are more manuscripts, especially in the, the New Testament. Old Testament is kind of different. Um, there are more manuscripts for the New Testament than any other ancient text. Like we're talking thousands and thousands of manuscripts as compared to maybe like a couple hundred for something like Homer, right? Uh, there are tons and tons of manuscripts of the New Testament. And what's amazing is they uniformly agree on 90 i think i i heard an actual well it gets complicated so um in this is a a side thing but in the messenger the next couple messenger articles are going to be on bible manuscripts and bible translation so um those are going to be my articles at least so you can kind of be on the lookout for that but uh the point is that despite having like all these manuscripts they basically all agree on 90 let's say 98% of everything um, there are a few uh, places where they disagree on so and then most of the disagreements most of the very what we call variants in the manuscripts between the different manuscripts that we would know you know we know what the Bible is most of them are like, Differences in the spelling of a word. So like one person spelled organization with an S and one person spelled organization with a Z. You know, that kind of thing. Um, Or differences in like verb form. Or differences in sentence structure. Which with like Greek sentence structure, you can, unlike English where you have to have pretty specific sentence structure, you can put words in lots of orders and it still makes sense in Greek. So um, most of these things are really... Uh, not important. My point in all of this is that, um, so I think he says in here that uh, we know, we we know what the, the all the big stuff, we know what the Bible says. There's really no doubt on what the Bible says. 
there are – I did want to point this out. So since we started eight minutes late, if you'll give me a little bit of leeway time here. Um, there are three places in the Bible, I think, um, from what I can tell, where the issue of manuscript difference probably does need to be addressed. And the reason it does is because a lot of modern Bibles will do this annoying thing to me where they put brackets around things and they'll tell you in a footnote that the earliest manuscripts didn't contain this. Um, at least that's the case with two of them and then the other one's a little different. So if, we'll, if you'll look at these with me, um, I will kind of tell you what I think and then you can read the messenger so that I can prove my case to you. And then if any academic wants to come debate me, then I am very open to doing so um, because I think I'm right. So the first one is Matthew 16, 9 through 16. Matthew 16, 9 through 16, uh, which is what is called in academic circles the long ending of Mark. And I don't um, – I, I picked my Bible for uh, – oh, did I say Matthew? Yeah. I meant Mark. Oh, okay. I wrote down Matthew, but I meant Mark. I don't know why I did such a thing. Um, I started to turn to – yeah, Mark 16, 9 to 16, the long ending of Mark. Um, what version are you reading out of? I am reading out of the NKJV, which I am going to argue in the messenger is <laughs> – the best English translation. So uh, you have to wait for that. Um, but so the, the, the reason I'm ex- all excited about this is because this is what I studied on vacation. So I, you know, as you do on vacation, you read things and study them, right? So uh, that, this is, I studied manuscripts on vacation. So <laughs> that was my, uh, I was, learning about debates between Byzantine and Alexandrian text traditions. That's, that's what you do. Um, so Mark 16, 9 to 16. Uh, do your Bibles, mine does not. Um, mine has those brackets. You have the brackets. Does anyone else have the brackets? Whereas the earliest manuscripts from other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Okay, 9 through 20, yeah. Um, so there, yeah, there's a, the last four verses I think are part of the what they call the short ending. Anyway, um, is that why this is my Bible? Is it in different print even? Yeah. So this is what I think, and I will prove it to you in the messenger. But I think that all of this is pure Bible. I don't think that any of this is not in the Bible. Um, I think so the majority of manuscripts, the vast majority of manuscripts for the fir- that we had in our possession for the first like 1800 years of the Christian church. I can't remember exactly when Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus were discovered. That doesn't matter. Um, the vast majority of manuscripts included this long ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that it's not Scripture. 
And this is why I don't like a lot of modern Bible translations is because it makes you doubt this. That that maybe these weren't really words in the Bible. I think I think they clearly are. Um, I don't know why all the manuscripts that we so the reason that they say the earliest is because much later in history in, you know, the last couple hundred years, we discovered these earlier manuscripts that are they are older, but there's only a few of them. And so it's this kind of made up rule that, well, since this is really old, maybe the Bible got added to later on or whatever. It's actually a very liberal philosophy of Bible reading. So um, I anyway, the point is Mark 16, uh, 9 through 20, I believe, is totally the Bible. You can cross out the brackets, in my opinion, and just consider it Bible for yourselves um, because I think it's all true and it's all uh, to me, it's self-attesting words of Scripture, um, you know. And we actually have uh, one of these verses, uh, Mark 16:16. 16, 16. Um, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. That's one of the verses Luther uses in his catechism to prove our doctrine of baptism, uh, which I think is totally legit. So, um, anyway. I think you can cross out those brackets. I think that's good. The other place that's the exact same scenario as everything I just described is uh, John 7:53 through John 8. No, sorry, John 7:53 through 8:11. It's the first part of John 8, basically. So John 7:53 through 8:11, um, and this is the adulterous woman, uh, and you probably have the brackets there as well. John 7:53 through 8:11, and that's the same situation. I think it's totally Bible. I think that's where it goes in John. Um, the majority of manuscripts throughout history have always included uh, the woman caught in adultery in this place in John. I think it's totally legit. So don't doubt that this is biblical teaching because I I think it totally is. So um, the other place which is different than those two places is First uh, John five seven through eight. First John five seven through eight. And I have to grab another Bible here to, to see. So does it, do any of you have the King James right now? Oh. Yeah. So this is um, the King James Bible used some. They seem to have included some very obscure manuscripts when they uh, translated from what is called the Textus Receptus, and that that disagree with basically the majority of other manuscripts. So this is really the only place of concern. But um, first, First John five, seven through eight. First John is a very small book. Back in the back. And um, if someone wants to read, tell me what translation you're using, and then I'll, and then read seven through eight. NIV. Okay. So what's the NIV say? First John five seven through eight. For there are three that testify: the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. 
All right. So then in the New King James or the King or the King James, this is the one place where I don't like the New King James. Um, this is what it says. Uh, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and blood, and these three agree as one. So it's a very different reading, very different uh, translation there. Um, and it's because the, tran- tran- the manuscripts that the King James is based on are generally very good, but there's a few... Uh, minor weird things in them, and then th- this is the ma- kind of the major weird thing, is that it includes this out of nowhere, which is basically not in any other tran- manuscript. Um, and I, what the NIV has, I think, is more correct, which is in any translation but the KJV or the NKJV. Um, is these three testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, um, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit – or sorry, the, uh, that's the next verse. Uh, the Spirit, water, and blood, and these three are in agreement. Right? These three testify. Spirit, water, and blood, these three in agreement. So that's a much shorter, simpler reading um, than what's in the KJV. So the only re- – the reason to be aware of that is that there are people out there who are called KJV onlyist, right, who insist that the KJV is the only real translation um, and – I would be happy to debate them as well. I also think that they're wrong. Um, but I do think that the King James in general is very good. The New King James is my favorite, but there is that one weird spot. It's called the Johannine comma. If you want to look up debates on this on YouTube like I did while I was driving across Kansas, um, then you can look that up. But uh, the, anyway, the whole point of all of that is that those are the only three spots in Scripture where Christians tend to disagree on what the Bible is. I mean, other than that, that's not much. In a book this big, that's not much. Um, and even if you did take out those three passages, nothing about our doctrine would change, right? Um, we have tons of stuff other than Mark 16 for baptism. That said, I think Mark 16, 9 through 20, I think John 7, 53 through 8, 11, I think those are totally legit. I think you should cross out the brackets, and I'm really mad that Christian publishing houses would cause doubt in Christians' minds about what the Bible is. All right, rant over. Um, we will move on then next time to talk about more Bible stuff, and then we will move on to baptism. So uh, let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts which you have given us, and especially that gift of your holy word, which is our rule and norm for faith and life. We pray that it would continue to guide us, and we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to your holy word, that it may dwell in us, that we may digest it, and that we may lead holy lives according to it, that we may have the hope of everlasting life. We pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.